There's a remarkable coherence to the Bible. George Herbert, an English poet from the early 17th century, he had a deep and marvelous sense of this reality, that the Bible coheres. That it's not a group of discrete books that are unrelated and contradictory, but quite the opposite. That despite the plethora of human authors, there is a divine author behind all of them. And it's because of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of all of the parts of the Bible that the whole Bible coheres. In one of his poems, he talks about the Bible. I love this image as a book of stars. Listen to this stanza. Oh, that I knew how all thy lights combine and the configurations of their glory seeing not only how each verse doth shine, but all the constellations of the story. Could he say, I wish I could see how each verse and each part constituted a constellation, how they all work together to form a coherent picture. This verse marks that, and both to make a motion unto a third that ten leaves off that lie. It's a beautiful image of Scripture. That Scripture is like the stars in the sky. It coheres. It forms. There's constellations. And these constellations move and they work with one another. We're in the midst of a series of sermons where we're exploring one star. The opening chapters of Genesis. We're exploring how the light from these chapters combine with other chapters in Scripture forming a beautiful constellation. Today, we're looking at Genesis chapter 2. I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 3. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn there. Genesis chapter 3. This passage of scripture that Jim Westfall just read to us. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. It begins with a servant and a question. And the servant was more crafty than any other piece of the field the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now in the stories of the Old Testament, characters are revealed through actions. It's a very important concept that you need to know when you read the Bible. The Old Testament, written thousands of years ago, different culture, different language, different ways of telling stories that we have. And when they told stories, they didn't develop characters through explicit narrative description. The narrator didn't say this character looked like, acted like. They didn't describe the inner psychology. Instead, the characters are revealed. Their character traits, who they are, what they're like, they're revealed in, in Hebrew narrative through actions. It's more like Today's more like a Clint Eastwood than many modern novels. Clint Eastwood is a brilliant director, and his movies are super lean. They're very tight. They, the camera rarely pans out unless it needs to pan out. The characters are revealed through their behavior. You've seen his masterpiece, the movie Unforgiven. This is like that. You only know about the character through his behavior. 
This is the Old Testament. The stories of the Old Testament, you don't get paragraphs of description. You hardly ever in the Old Testament find a character described. So when you do, hey, Genesis 3, verse 1. The serpent was more crafty. This is hardly ever done in the Old Testament. Hardly ever do you find a character described. And what does it mean when you come across something like this? It, it's so rare you should pay attention. And we've got a hint that we need to examine very carefully whatever the serpent said. Because it's stupid. It's crafty. He may not be saying what he seems to be saying. We should not take his word on face value. So the serpent asked the question, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? What kind of question is this? Well, on the surface, it's an innocent question, an honest question, honest curiosity, just seeking the truth. But all questions. They lock you into a way of thinking about the subject at hand. They fire the imagination. And this question opens Eve's eyes to a possibility that is brand new. A new possibility. Something she had never considered. Perhaps did God did not say what she thinks he said. Surely the good creator could not have possibly meant what he said in the way that she's been interpreting it. Surely God, the creator, would not have imposed this type of restriction on his own creation. It's fascinating. In Satan, in the serpent's speech, in Hebrew, the original language, the first word of, out of his mouth is not. What's in English, did God actually say, you shall not eat? Well, in Hebrew, it's, did God actually say, and in the first word he has coming out of God's mouth, in Hebrew, not you shall eat. He skews her to seeing God as an essay. Fascinating kind of technique. What kind of question is this? It's the kind of question you get from a fourth tongue. The serpent plainly wants to be thought of as coming from God's side. He's acting as if he knows the depths of the true God that is beyond this command, beyond his words. The serpent is acting as if he knows more about God than the human being knows, who depends on God's word. The serpent knows of a more exalted God, a nobler God, who has no need to make such a prohibition. And from this strongly held position, the serpent fights against the word of God by acting like it represents the true God over against a false conception of God. And so here we have Satan, veiled in piety. A wolf in sheep's clothing. Darkness and evil in the form of an angel of light. Did God really say this? Does it really apply to me in this particular circumstance? Is it my situation a little different 
than what God was talking about in that part of the Bible. The God whom I know, the loving God, the God of kindness, the God of compassion, he would not demand such limitations from me, such boundaries of me. He would not impose upon me such a restriction of our freedom. Fascinating, isn't it? Satan takes, you know, if you look back in chapter 2, you may eat all the trees of the garden. The first word out of God's mouth is freedom. All the trees you can eat, but don't eat this one. Satan comes along and gets Eve to believe that because God limited one freedom, he limited her freedom. That because God put boundaries on, he was a God who was a naysayer. The issue at stake here is that Satan has identified a power behind God, an idea, a notion that love, freedom, tolerance, compassion. And it's this power from which God draws his essence. It's over against this power that God's identity is created. It's this idea, this trait, against which God is qualified. So now we can see the new possibility that Eve is considered. In this seemingly simple question, the serpent has asked Eve to sit in judgment on God's word. Did God actually say Eve, look at this word from God and determine if it is actually from God. Because you know what God really wants. And if this word doesn't measure up to that, then judge this word and free yourself from it. Sit in judgment on God's word instead of merely listening to it and obeying it. This is the new possibility. This is what humankind has never conceived of up until this moment. That humankind can sit in judgment on God's word based on an idea or a principle or some prior knowledge of God, and now God's word must measure up to that idea to that principle, to that characteristic of God. But any time we use a principle or an idea as a weapon to fight against the word of God, at that point, we have ceased to be God's creation, God's creature. And now we have become God's master. And we have left the path of obedience. We have struck out on our own resources. We have become like God. We know good. What we, what we are seeing here in Genesis 3 is the first occasion of humanity forsaking obedience to God because it sits in judgment on God's word. What kind of question did the serpent ask? It was not a question seeking truth. It was a question in the guise of truth seeking. No, this is the kind of question that calls into question God's authority. Christians, we must be aware of this temptation. I love that line of Brother Bar Arthur that we were talking about this this weekend that people think Satan comes to us with a big tip. Did you know that? Satan is not going to come to those who love God 
explicitly acting as the enemy of God. That's good. It's far more attractive. So he comes as if he is on the side of God, leading us to consider the aspects in our life that do not measure up to the noble God, the true God. The most popular boogeyman in the Christian circles that we move in, many of us in this room, is legalism. In sermons and conversations and books, it seems that being legalistic is the biggest threat to true Christianity today. That is a distraction. It is not the biggest threat. Legalism is not the greatest threat that we face today. Our greatest threat is forgetting that God will be a God of wrath toward those who disobey his commandments. That is our Achilles' hit. There are not legalists in America. There's some soft sort of legalism that we do psychology on to twist into, into showing us how we're trying to earn God's favor. That is not our greatest struggle in America today. We are not a group of medieval Catholic monks who are flaming ourselves out of our desire to earn God's favor. We are a group of libertines that do not believe God's wrath will be poured out on those who disobey his commandment. When it comes to our money, to our bodies, to our time, to our parents, to our neighbors, God's word is something to which we must yield. God's word commands us to give 10% of our money to him through the church. It's a command. You cannot sit in judgment upon that command. And beyond that, to be very generous and very sacrificial in giving to those in need. If you're not living at a lower standard of living than your paycheck allows for, you are disobedient. Your boogeyman is not legal. God's word limits sex to the marriage relationship between one man and one woman. God's word commands us to set aside one day of our week. It is the Lord's day. It is just like our tithe. It belongs to him. We give it to him up front in an act of faith that the six days that follow will encounter, will be enough to do what he's called to do, just like in our tithe. The 90% that we have left over will be enough to do what we need to do. God's word commands children and teenagers to obey their parents. God's word commands us to love our neighbor with the same radical devotion we love ourselves. Beware of being so crafty that we sit in judgment on God's word. Beware of setting up our own values for what is the good, the standard against which we judge God's word. And we judge God when we do this. The results are terrible. Like we heard earlier from, the, from Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 through 19, we see the graphic consequences of thinking that, that we can judge God. Consequences are both physical, toil, pain, death, and spiritual. 
They're kicked out of the garden, away from the tree of life, away from the place where God walks, away from the presence of God. The spiritual consequences follow the act of disobedience immediately. Immediately you find them hiding. Immediately they're covered in shame. They're alienated from God, from one another. The physical penalty, pain, suffering, death, they may take longer to become evident, but they are no less sure. It takes time for forms to grow, but they are no less sure. Disobedience to the law of God brings physical pain and suffering and alienation from God. Notice, because of Adam and Eve's sin, God curses the serpent, curses human law, and he curses the ground, and he pronounces judgment on Adam and Eve. Their disobedience provokes the wrath of God, the judgment of God. Now let's look carefully at the nature of God's judgment on Adam and Eve. Remember at the beginning, Adam was created in a particular way. Genesis 2.7, the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground. And Adam was created at a particular job, the men over the earth. That's Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. God blessed them and said to him, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heaven, and over every living thing. However, when Adam disobeys God, did you catch Genesis 3 17? When it was read, starting about halfway through, curses the ground because of you, in pain you shall eat of it. Thorns and thistles that will bring forth for you, you shall eat. Plants of the field by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread so you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust. And now, because of your sin, through dust you shall return. God's word of judgment stands in direct contrast to God's word of creation. What was God's word of creation? Let there be man and woman. Out of the dust, out of the ground. He created Adam and Eve out of the dust to rule over the earth. That was God's word of creation. But now God's word of judgment is to undo that. Adam will yield to the earth and return to the dust. God's word of judgment in the Bible is the antithesis of his word of creation. This is consistent throughout the Bible. Look at Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was very important, without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the what? waters. And God said, let there be light. There was light. Now, here we see the world was born out of water in creation. But when sin filled the world with moral chaos, God's word of judgment reduced the world to water in Noah's flood. God's word of judgment is anti-creative. It's the antithesis of his word of creation. It's the undoing of creation. Just one more example. Jeremiah chapter 4. Far to the right, Jeremiah chapter 4. A fascinating passage. 
where we see what I'm trying to teach here really well illustrated. The idea that in the Bible, curse and judgment is the anti-created move of God. Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 23. I looked on the earth, and behold, it was without form and void. And to the heavens they had no light. I looked on the mountains, and behold, they were quaking, and all the hills moved to and fro. I looked, and behold, there was no man. All the birds of the earth fled. You would think he's talking about the moment before creation. No, no, I looked, and behold, the fruitful land was a desert, and all its cities were laid in ruins before the Lord, before his fierce anger. This is what God did to Israel. It was an act of uncreation. Here we see the disobedience of Judah had provoked the wrath of God, evoking the anti-creative word of God. When God said, let there be light, there was light. And when God said, let there be cursing, there was cursing. God's word is powerful. It is powerful to create, and it is powerful to judge. God's word of judgment reduced the kingdom and people of Judah to the chaos of Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. He reduced Judah to an uninhabited waste and void. So what does all of this mean? Well, let's go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. At the heart of God's creation is blessing. At the center of God's created word is blessing. And God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. Humans are given the responsibility of being fruitful upon the earth and subduing the earth in order to have dominion over it. And God's blessing is that which he gives us to empower us to do that. The essence of biblical blessing is everything that fosters procreative ability and dominion. The essence of blessing is everything that fosters vitality and leadership, lordship, dominion, victory. On the other hand, Adam and Eve sin, when they disobey God's word, the consequence is judgment. And the essence of judgment is everything hindering our procreative ability, everything resisting our dominion. Instead of vitality and victory, it's death and defeat. So blessing and cursing, two ways. Proverbs says two roads. Two houses, two tables, two invitations. And they both depend on one thing obedience or disobedience. They're both contingent upon obedience when we take our own values and use them to sit in judgment on God's word. God will use His word to sit in judgment on us. If we judge God's word, God's word will judge us. It will undo us. The judging of the word of God will absolutely undo the blessing of God. The first sin became an avalanche of sins. The first fall began a process of falling. And humankind is in 
continuing to fall deeper and deeper. Adam and Eve's sin was no moral lapse. It was rebellion. It was the destruction of creation by the creature. Our sins result in the undoing of our humanity. In God's wrath, we receive the anti-creative consequences of our disobedience. In God's judgment, we face the undoing of God's blessing in our lives. This is a terrible reality. Adam and Eve, this is not just a historical occurrence. It is a paradigm. It is a paradigm for my life and your life. All of our misery comes from this sin and the subsequent sin. All of our sicknesses stem from this contagion. Sin is such a cruel mistress. She will make a lover of a slave. She will strip you of your blessing and clothe you with corruption. And exile is her dowry. But in Genesis 3, it is not only the terror of God's wrath that we see. We also see the beauty of God's grace. Notice the promise in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. You shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. There is a promise that Satan will be subdued. Sin and evil will come to an end. Here is the beginning of God's redemptive mission. Here is God's mercy in the brutal and inescapable reality of our sin and the consequences God promises that the anti-creative word he utters will not be the last word he utters. God promises that judgment will be transformed in the blessing. The woman who was created to help out to be the partner he needed to fill the earth and to rule the earth instead of life, her first gift to the marriage is the death she brings to hell. But the beautiful and merciful and gracious irony is that in Genesis 3 20, Adam named her Eve, the mother of all the living. Yes, Adam and Eve received the pronouncement of judgment, but the conflict began in the Garden of Eden will be resolved through the seed of a woman. The woman who delivered man to sin will become the woman who will deliver a Savior to mankind. Our disobedience has robbed the world of its creative blessing. All of creation is dropping infinitely into space like a meteor that's torn its way from the corner in which it wants to belong. And in this fallen and falling world, God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, the last act, to undo the work of every act. The nails that pierce the feet of Jesus would crush the head of the serpent. Adam's sin called forth the thorns that the Roman soldiers fashioned into a bloody crown for Jesus. The sins that brought sweat to Adam's brow covered the brow of Jesus in sweat drops of blood. The first Adam, through his disobedience, thought that he could escape death. The last Adam was obedient unto death. 
to restore life. In Genesis 3.21, the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. What a beautiful act of mercy. But even more, do you see the glory of the gospel? Here is the Lord slaughtering the innocent to cover the shame of the guilty. In this offering of the animals, the earth tastes its first taste of innocent blood shed. And for the first time, Adam saved, unmerited favor. What a beautiful action repeated again by the Lord. Hebrews 9, 26 tells us that the Lord God put away sin through another innocent. It's fitting that the Lord God who made the first sacrifice would make the last sacrifice. He made the first sacrifice to clothe Adam and Eve in their shame, but he made the last sacrifice to clothe us in his righteousness. The last Adam suffered the nakedness that the first Adam grieved over, and he laid on himself all of our wickedness. And in that, he laid himself on the altar. Truly was on the cross that the skin of the innocent covered the shame of the guilty. And we say the unmerited faith and grace of God. In the last scene of Genesis 3, God places angels to guard the way to the tree of life in the temple. God commanded Israel to weave a giant curtain that covered the entrance to the Holy of Holies, to the presence of God, and he told Israel to weave into that curtain two angels, guarding the entrance. When Jesus died on the cross, Matthew 27 and 51 tells us that curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. You see the first Adam in life, lost his way. The last Adam, by death, began. The first Adam made a grave out of the garden. The last Adam, we saw in John chapter 20, turned a grave back to the garden. The first Adam robbed us of access to the tree of life. The last Adam climbed onto a tree of death to give us access once again to life. Look, I believe this is the truest picture of history and reality. This is the coherence. The Bible says that God is the Alpha Omega, the first and the last. What he did at the beginning, he will do again at the end. This is the coherent picture of the Bible. From its first to its last page, the coherence of Scripture is Jesus Christ. It is as Scripture coheres to tell the story of Jesus. How God uses history itself as an allegory of a later history. History is his story. He is running the show. 
reveals Jesus. All of Scripture points to Jesus. There is a way to life. Jesus is the way to life. The leaves of the tree, the tree that Christ died upon, they cover our shame far better than the leaves that Adam and Eve did. They healed the nation. What a bitter meal Adam and Eve sat down to. What a bitter meal you and I experience when we sit in authority and judgment over God and His Word. We get consequences that are physical and spiritual, but there is no sweeter feast than upon the bread of His there is no nobler cup than the wine of his blood. The meal that he sets forth. This is a meal you should partake. The first Adam traded Eden, the presence of God, for a morsel of fruit. The last Adam gave his body to become a meal so that we could re-enter the presence of God, and once again find our way to Eden. By eating the first Adam brought death, but Jesus Christ, the last Adam, made eating the means of life. John 6, 41, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is by eating that we lost our way, and it is by only coming to Christ to feast that we can find our way. If you have not feasted on Christ, if you have not placed your faith in Christ, if you have not come to his table in faith, you are doomed. You're doomed. You will face the anti-creative word of God. It will absolutely undo you. But if you would come to him, if you will come to his table, and Christian. If there are areas of your life where you have been tasting forbidden fruit, where you have set yourself up as wiser than God, where you are sitting in judgment of God's word, if there are areas in your life where you are appealing to your value system as a better way than the commands of God. Repent. Come to the table. Come to the table in repentance. And be covered by the leaves of the tree that are for the healing of the nation. And feast on his body and blood that will lead to life. Let's pray.